Chapter Two of the Black Fawn by James Arthur Kelgard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The fawn trembled on legs so new and untried, and so slender that they seemed scarcely able to support his jackrabbit-sized body. His ears were ridiculously long, and his staring, fascinated eyes were all out of proportion to his tiny head. The white stripes and spots that mark the young of all white-tailed deer stood out against an undercoating of hair that was abnormally dark. On the neck and shoulders it was nearly black. The gentle Shep wagged his tail and took a step nearer this tiny wild baby. Raising a front foot, the fawn tapped a hoof no bigger than a twenty-five-cent piece and looked back over his shoulder at the laurel copse where the doe had left him. Scenting the approach of a dog and a human being, she had fled. The little buck should have stayed in hiding, but his natural curiosity had overridden the doe's warning not to move. For a moment Bud was too bewildered and delighted to think clearly. Then he was lifted on a cloud of ecstasy and sympathy. He was sure the fawn had been abandoned by his father and mother, or that they were dead. Like Bud, the little buck was left to shift for himself in a cheerless and friendless world, and Bud felt that he was forever bound to this tiny deer. There was a bond between them that nothing else could share and nothing could ever break. As long as either endured, Bud decided, each would love the other because each understood the other. They were brothers. "'Hi, little guy,' Bud said softly. Shep, tail wagging, head bent and ears tumbled forward, stayed beside him as he took the fawn in both arms. Soft as a cloud, the fawn surrendered to his embrace and gravely smelled his arm, with a nose as delicate as an orchid. "'Don't be afraid,' Bud crooned. "'You won't be hurt. Nothing will ever hurt you.' He spoke almost fiercely, mindful of his own many hurts, and stared into space as he cradled the fawn. Shep sat near, his jaws parted and beaming approval as only a dog can. Bud's heart spiraled upward. Now, at last, he had found a true friend. He was unaware of passing time or of long evening shadows. He only knew that he wanted to stay with this little black buck forever. "'What'd you find, Bud?' Bud had not heard Gramps Bennett come up behind him. A terrible vision of the glass-eyed buck's head in the farm living room arose in Bud's mind, and he looked about wildly for a place in which to hide the fawn. But it was too late to hide it, and he turned slowly, so as not to startle the little buck, and said truculently, "'Shep found this little lost deer.' "'Well, now,' Gramps said, ignoring Bud's belligerent tone, "'Doggone if he didn't. Cute little feller, too, and he's sure taken a shine to you.' Gramps stooped beside the pair and stroked the fawn softly. Bud stared at him, 
for Gramps was no longer the tyrant who acted as if Bud were a machine for getting beans weeded and cows milked. It's, it's, Bud tried to get out. And then he could not explain. How could he describe all the terror, all the loneliness and all the fear that he had felt to one who had never known these things? Bud gritted his teeth and looked stubbornly away. "'It's what?' Gramps asked. "'It's father and mother have run away and left it,' Bud blurted out. "'Let me put you straight on that, Bud. It's mother ran away when she smelled or saw you and Shep coming. Fathers of baby deer like this, well, they just don't care much for their young'uns.' Bud was astonished. "'You mean it had no father?' Gramps said solemnly, "'I haven't seen any fawn-carrying storks round here for might nigh two years. This baby had a father all right. Maybe old Yellowfoot himself.' "'Who's old Yellowfoot?' "'If you'd been round here for two months, instead of just a couple days, you'd never ask that.' Gramps said. Old Yellowfoot's nothing except the biggest and smartest buck ever left a hoofprint in Bennett's woods, or, as far as that goes, in Dishno County. Why, boy, old Yellowfoot's got a rack of antlers the like of which even I never saw, and I've been hunting deer in these parts for, let's see, it's lacking two of fifty years. You... Bud hugged the fawn a little tighter. "'You shot the deer?' Gramps said seriously, "'You look at that fawn, then you look at me, and you ask in the same tone you might use if you thought I was going to murder some babies. You shoot the deer? Well, I don't shoot the deer. I could, mind you, cause next to lacing your own shoes, just about the easiest thing round here is shooting a deer. But I don't even hunt the deer. I hunt old Yellowfoot, and some day, so help me, his head'll hang alongside the one you saw in the sitting room. I could never like it, Bud said. Gramps remained serious. You say that, but you don't know what you're talking about, because you never tried it. You see this baby, and he sure is cute as a button. He's going to be a black buck when he grows up, but right now he hasn't the sense of a half-witted mud turtle. That's not to be wondered at. He hasn't had time to learn sense, and if he had any, he wouldn't let you handle him like he was a puppy. You think he's so pretty, so nice, so friendly, and you're right. You think also he's a deer, and he sure is. You go astray when you think anybody who'd shoot this fawn, a deer, is more brute than human, and you're partly right. But, boy, there's as much difference twixt this baby and old Yellowfoot as there is between a sparrow and an ostrich. Interested, in spite of himself, Bud asked, "'What's the difference?' The difference? Old Yellowfoot ain't as smart as the men that hunt him. He's a darn sight smarter. Hunt him high and hunt him low, and if you can get one look at him, 
in cover too thick for shooting or so far off that it's useless to shoot, you can call yourself a hunter. Hang his head on the wall, and you're in a class with the best. Old Yellowfoot's educated, and he's got his education the hard way. Hunters gave it to him. For the past five years, fifty hunters I know of have had him marked. Nobody's brought him in, and that says enough. But maybe, come deer season, you and me will nail him. What say? Bud stirred uneasily, for this was something new to him. In every crisis of his life he had found the love and affection he craved in animals. It was unthinkable to hurt, let alone to kill, a bird or beast. He asked finally, "'How long have you been hunting old Yellowfoot?' "'Ever since he sported the biggest rack of antlers of any buck I know. That's five years.' Bud breathed a little easier. Gramps had hunted the big buck for five years. It was highly unlikely that he would kill him the sixth year. When Bud remained silent, Gramps asked again, "'What say? When the season rolls around, are you and me going to hunt old Yellowfoot?' Bud said reluctantly, "'I'll go with you. I'll carry your gun.' "'Pooh!' Gramps snorted. In the first place, it ain't a gun. It's a rifle. What's more, you'll be carrying your own. Seven boys and four girls mother and me raised on this farm. Every one hunted, and when they left the farm, they left their rifles and shotguns. One of them's sure to suit you. Bud thought of a beautiful dapple-gray toy horse with a real leather saddle and bridle that he had seen in a store window when he had been six. He had wanted that horse more than he had ever wanted anything, and every night he had prayed for it. But after his birthday had come and gone, and his letters to Santa Claus been unavailing, he had concluded that dreams never come true, and from then on had stifled his desires. Now, listening to Gramps, Bud wanted a gun of his own more than he had wanted anything since the dapple-gray toy horse. He was not sure just what he would do with a rifle, except that he would never kill anything, but that did not lessen the glory of having one of his own like Daniel Boone, Jedediah Smith, Kit Carson, Buffalo Bill, and a host of other heroes. "'Gosh!' Bud said at last. "'I know what you mean,' Gramps said, "'and it's time we were getting back. Mother will fret if we're away too long.' Bud stooped and gathered the black fawn in his arms. It was as wispy as it looked, and seemed to have no weight as it snuggled contentedly against him. Gramps said, "'We'll leave him, Bud.' "'Leave him?' It was a cry of anguish. The thought of abandoning the little buck, already once abandoned, was unbearable. He had forged a true bond with another living creature that had nobody except him. He couldn't leave it. "'We'll leave him,' Gramps repeated firmly. "'He belongs in the woods.' "'Hunters will kill him.' Gramps smiled. 
Come deer season, that little guy won't have aught except buttons. Next year he'll be a spike. That's a buck with no tines on his antlers. Or maybe a forkhorn. That's a buck with one tine. He's safe for a while. If he's smart and lucky, maybe he's safe for a long while. He'll die with no one to look after him. He has somebody to look after him. Maybe his pappy don't pay him any heed, but, though she run off and left him when you and Shep came, his mammy sure thinks a heap of her son. There are those who say she'll never come back now that he's been handled and has human scent on him. If ever they say that to you, you tell them hogwash. She'll be back. Bud hesitated. All his life he had searched for something, and now that he had found the fawn, he was being asked to leave it. Rebellion mounted within him. On second thought, Gramps said disinterestedly, fetch him along if you've a mind to. His mammy'll be sore-hearted for a time when she comes back for him, and he ain't there, but she'll get over it. Bud gasped. The mother he had never known was a hundred different people, most of them imaginary. He had never known exactly what she was like, or even what he wanted her to be like. But if he ever found her, he knew how she would feel if he were taken away. "'We'll leave him,' he said. He put the fawn down, and the little black buck minced a few steps and jerked his tail playfully. As he watched, Bud knew that the bond between him and the fawn would remain. They were blood brothers, even if their form and species were different. Reluctantly, he fell in beside Gramps, and, with Shep tagging at their heels, they started back toward the farmhouse. Bud turned to look again at the fawn. He thought he saw the doe emerge from a thicket and return to her lost baby but he realized at once that he was imagining what he wanted to see. Then they rounded a bend, and the next time Bud looked back, he could not see the fawn at all. He stifled an almost overpowering urge to run back to the fawn. "'His mother will really come back to care for him?' he asked Gramps. "'Don't you fret. She'll come back, and like as not she's there now. "'Do you like to fish for trout, Bud?' I don't know. I've never tried it. What did you fish for? Nothing. I just never fished. Imagine that, Gramps said happily. You'll start with me tomorrow morning. I'll show you the biggest gosh darn brown trout as ever sucked a fly off Skunk Crick. And ain't that a heck of a name for a crick? But this trout, he's named right good. Old Shark, they call him, and he's busted enough leaders and rods to stock a good-sized tackle store. Wait till you see him. The way Gramps spoke of Old Yellowfoot, the great buck, and Old Shark, the great trout, drove the black fawn from Bud's thoughts. He fought against it, but he could not help a warm feeling toward this man who spoke of wild creatures or at least of mighty wild creatures with near reverence and who believed that if you were going to kill or try to kill them, you should pit yourself against a worthy opponent. 
What had happened to the old farmer who had seemed able to think only of starting the day at dawn with milking his four cows, and of ending it after dark with milking the same cows? Then Bud's conscience smote him. "'We can't fish tomorrow.' "'And why not?' "'I came here to work.' Gramps said dryly, "'The work is always with us.' And sometimes it seems like Old Shark's always been with us, too. But while the work won't end, Old Shark will if I lay another fly into him. Or maybe you'll do it. Bud started to speak and stopped. Many a time during his years in the orphanage, he had watched prospective parents come and go, and he had yearned to go with some of them. Then, along with most of the others who had passed the age of seven without being adopted, he had finally realized that nobody wanted him. Nor would anyone want him until he was old enough to work. And if he did not work, how could he justify his existence? "'What were you going to say?' Gramps asked. "'I'm not afraid to work.' "'Course you ain't. Nobody worth his salt is afraid to work.' But there's a time for work, and... Gramps paused, as if for emphasis. There's a time for fishing. Tomorrow we'll milk the cows, turn them out to pasture, and go fishing. Yes, sir. Call me Gramps, Gramps said. Yes, Gramps, Bud said warily. He was bewildered by the idea of going fishing when he should be working. Where was the trap, he wondered. They came to the house, went around to the kitchen door, and Shep went to his bed on the back porch. The kitchen was brightly lighted, and Bud thought he saw Graham back hastily away from the door, as though she had been watching for them. But when they entered, Graham was sitting at the table, knitting. Near her, at Bud's place, was a tall glass of cold milk, and a huge cut of strawberry pie. Graham looked over her glasses and frowned at Bud, but she spoke to Gramps. "'Delbert, you were a long while bringing Alan back.' "'Now, mother,' he said, "'it's been nigh unto fourteen years since anybody saw a man-eating lion in Bennett's woods.' "'Huh!' Graham snorted. It might not be so funny if that boy had strayed into the woods and got lost. But he didn't get lost, Gramps said reasonably. Bud and me, we met out in the woods and had us a good long talk. Something in Gramps' voice turned Gram's frown into a smile. Well, you're both here now, and I suppose that's what matters. Alan, sit down and eat your pie and drink your milk. I'm really not hungry, Bud protested. Pooh, all boys are hungry all the time. Sit down and eat. Yes, ma'am. He sat down, took a long drink of the cold milk, ate a forkful of pie, and found that he was hungry after all. Looking around Graham's kitchen as he ate, he thought of the one at the orphanage where, in spite of the thousands of dishes he had wiped there, and the bushels of potatoes he had peeled, he had never been invited to sit down to a glass of cold milk and a cut of pie. It was a very disquieting thing, 
and his weariness mounted. He looked furtively around again for a trap, but Graham had returned to her knitting, and Gramps was delving into a leather-covered case. Gramps's case was a homemade thing divided into a number of small compartments. One by one, he took from their respective compartments an assortment of vari-colored objects and arranged them on a piece of newspaper. They looked like insects, but were made from tiny bits of feathers and wisps of hair. Each one was arranged about a hook. The biggest was not large, and the smallest was so tiny and so fragile that it looked as if the merest puff of wind would whirl it away. Bud looked on agog. "'Dry flies,' Gramps said. "'I don't know what he'll take, but we'll try him first with a black gnat.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Call me Gramps,' the old man growled. "'Yes, Gramps.' This time it slipped out, naturally and easily, almost warmly, for the flies were so interesting that Bud forgot everything else. Although he had never been fishing, he had always believed that you fished with a stout pole, a strong hank of line, a hook and worms for bait but these dry flies were plainly conceived by one artist and tied by another. It was easy to see that only an artist could use them properly. Gramps took one of the smaller ones between his thumb and forefinger, and the fly seemed even smaller in comparison with the hand holding it. "'Yep, I think a number fourteen black gnat is what he'll hit, which proves all over again what a darn old fool I am.' Saying aforehand what old shark will hit is like saying it will rain on the 7th of May two years from now. Might and might not, and the chances are 364 to 1 it won't. Have a look, Bud. Bud took the delicate mite in his own hand and held it gingerly. The longer he looked, the more wonderful it seemed. Where do you get them? he asked. I tie em. Got good and tired of using store-bought flies that won't take anything except baby trout or those just out of a hatchery that haven't any sense. Let's see it, Bud. Gramps returned the fly to its proper place, and Bud was half glad and half sorry to give it up. He was afraid he might damage the fly, but at the same time he yearned to examine it at length. He stole a glance at Gramps' huge hands and marveled. It was easy to believe that those hands could guide a plow, shoe a horse, fit a hoe, and do almost any job that demanded sheer strength. But it seemed incredible that they could assemble with such perfection anything as minute and fragile as a dry fly. Suddenly and surprisingly, for he was no more aware of being tired than he had been of being hungry, Bud yawned. Graham looked up. "'You'd best get to bed, Alan. Growing boys need their rest as much as they do their food.' "'Good idea, Bud,' Gramps said. "'If you and me are going to get the milking done and hit Skunk Crick when we ought, we'll have to roll out early.' Bud said good night and went up the worn stairs to his room. 
For a moment he stared out of the window into the night, yearning toward the little black buck and worrying about how it was faring. It seemed impossible for anything so small and helpless to survive. But he was not as desperately worried as he had been, for Gramps had said that the doe would return to take care of it. And Bud knew that in Gramps he had at last found somebody he could trust. Leaving his bedroom door open to take advantage of a cool breeze blowing through the window, Bud stretched luxuriously on the feather-filled mattress and pulled the blankets up to his chin. Graham's voice came up the stairway. "'Well, Delbert?' "'He came round,' he heard Gramps say. "'He came round lot sooner than I figured. Found himself a fawn, he did.' cutest little widget you ever laid eyes on, and almost black. There was a short silence, and Gramps finished. He thought it was another orphan. So? So tomorrow morning, Bud and me are going to fish for Old Shark. How will he tie that in with being worked like a Mexican slave his first two days with us? Gramps said, you take a skittish, scared colt out of pasture and put it to work, you work it hard enough so it forgets about being skittish and scared. And Mexicans aren't slaves, mother. You, Delbert. It worked, Gramps said. Graham sniffed. So'd Alan, and no wonder. You wouldn't go down and pick a boy, as any sensible man would have done. You wrote a letter saying we'll give bed, board, and schooling to a strong, healthy boy who's capable of working. Send the boy. I hope Alan didn't see that letter. It's no mind if he did. And why do you suppose I rode in instead of going in? Think I wanted that horse-faced old bat who runs the place to have fits? Miss Dempster is not a horse-faced old bat. Graham said sharply. She'd still have fits if she had to figure out anything not written down in her rule book, and it says in her book that older orphans are for working only. Anyway, what does it matter? Ain't we got a young un round the place again? Yes, Graham sighed. Thank heaven. Bud heard the last of this conversation only dimly, for sleep was overcoming him. He was even more vaguely aware of someone ascending the stairs, pausing beside his bed and planting a kiss on his cheek. Then he was lost in a sleepy dream of a mother who loved and cherished him and whom he loved and cherished. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline